1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm here with Rob Sheffield, and I think we're going to go right into Rob's conversation with Michael Stipe, formerly of R.A.M. I loved the
0: song you did last year with uh, Aaron Dessner from The National.
2: No time for love like now.
0: It was really an astounding song, but it sounded kind of like an artistic renewal in a way.
2: Yeah, he's amazing, and it was such a great pleasure to be able to work with him. And that piece of music just wanted a voice, (laughs) so I gave it one. What's so weird (laughs) about what's so super weird about the song is it mentions lockdown and it mentions this in-between place. And I wrote it before COVID. You know, none of us had any idea what was coming, of course. But it's a little weirdly prescient that song. It freaks me out a little bit still. That in the lyric uh, is a little bit of a description of what we've all been going through now for a year. But I finished it in. uh, November of uh, 2019, I guess. Yeah.
0: That's amazing because it sounds like a COVID song.
2: I mean, I mentioned lockdown in the song. It actually is a little freaky to tell you the truth. To you hear your voice again in a song like
0: this and all the songs that you've released in the last couple of years? For a longtime fan like me, it raises the question of whether you're just falling back in love with making music again.
2: Yeah, I had to really step away from it um, for a while after R.E.M. disbanded. I just had immersed myself so completely in everything that it took to to you know to give rem everything that i would require as kind of a lead singer control freak i needed to be all in or, or or not at all when we decided to disband i just needed to really step away from music for a while and um you know i took about five years and, and then kind of accidentally brought myself back into it so it feels good to write i'm composing for the first time in my life this past year and a half or so and i'm really pleased with the results anyone who is expecting a, some version of REM. Don't expect that because you're not going to fit it. Just go find something else that you like. But I'm, I'm pretty pleased with the results of our work.
0: Yeah. It doesn't sound like recapitulating the past. It sounds sort of like you're reaching for a new kind of future.
2: I've never composed music before. I always had Peter and Mike and Bill to do that for me. And so this presents a whole new I mean, I played um, classical piano as a child. And then I stopped and I completely forgot it. I used to read music. I I could do hand over hand. So somewhere in there is some understanding of composition. But I came at it as someone who was always presented with great pieces of music. And then my job was to put a voice to them and to add melody and then arrangement. Sometimes the arrangements were already there. Like in the case of Losing My Religion, the song is exactly as Peter first ever put it down on set tape. From beginning to end, it's exactly the same but a lot of songs require arrangements. So anyway, yeah, I'm doing that myself now.
0: You've always been the kind of artist who's always been very forthright about being a fan first. What were some of your formative experiences of being a music fan?
2: I come from a family that loves music but doesn't particularly listen to it. And so the music that I had was quite um, limited. I have an older sister, but she's just barely older than me. So I didn't have that experience that many of my friends had of having an older sibling who was tuned into what was going on musically. Uh, in the late 60s and the 70s. uh, When I was a teenager, I kind of fell into music through pop radio. And my love of the monkeys and um, uh, the banana splits and the Archie's far exceeded my understanding of the Beatles and the who. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, so you wound up with such gems as shiny happy people and uh, stand and get up and songs like that, that were kind of fruity pop songs for kids. And R.E.M. just kind of trying to you know push ourselves to do really super different things and not fall into the trap of writing the same song over and over again for 10 albums. Pop Ego was really wildly influential on me. The first songs, I would say, that really completely like, took me back uh, and I was like, uh, this is something really new was Rock On by David Essex. Hey kids, this together. Benny and the Jets by Elton John, who just celebrated a birthday. So I, yeah. sang, I sang to him on his birthday, which is nice. We're friends now. So that's kind of wild. But at the age of, I guess, 13, Benny and the Jets just ripped my head off and, and threw it around the room a few times before handing it back to me. I don't think I'd ever heard anything like that before. Shortly following through Cream Magazine, I discovered the CBGB scene in New York and Patti Smith, and I never looked back. It's amazing
0: that you never. You never lost your banana splits when you gained CBGB, you didn't lose the banana splits.
2: Well, it wasn't that different to tell you the truth. I mean, the music that was inspiring, the kind of cartoon uh, music that I grew up with as a kid in the 60s was the same music that inspired the Ramones and Patti Smith. It's a lot of doo-wop to tell you the truth. I mean, I think Ronnie Spector is still underexamined in terms of you know the resonance of, of her work, the Ronettes, that kind of stuff. And then of course, at the age of 18, I moved to Athens, Georgia. And became familiar, very familiar with the band the B-52s, who are another band that you know deserve not only a chapter but I think several, several books are written about uh, how much they impacted uh, the course of contemporary music. What they were doing was so radical uh, at the time, and it took punk rock, which had become new wave, I guess, or no wave at that point in the late 70s, and again flipped it on its head and said, No, actually, that's that's good and great, but this is how we do it. And nobody knew what had happened.
0: You mentioned Benny and the Jets and Rock On. And of course, you did your own version of that with Drive.
2: What if you did? What if you walked? What if you try to get off?
0: That's a huge song for me. It's a, a huge, huge album for me. Life-changing. But Drive in particular is such a haunting and kind of scary song.
2: It's funny that you call it haunting because it was actually recorded in a haunted house <laughs> in uh, in New Orleans. It's actually where I first met Brad Pitt because he was working on um he was working on Interview with the Vampire uh, at the time in New Orleans and R.E.M. were there recording. That record was Automatic for the People, right? Yeah. And um, I remember recording Drive because it was actually the first it was the first song that I held a computer and read the lyric off of a computer screen. So that album was the first record that I composed on a computer. Uh, and I distinctly remember uh, standing at the top of the stairs in this haunted mansion with all these, they did all these crazy mics to try to capture the sound of the room. And Drive was the first song that I sang uh, like that with a computer with a backlit screen.
0: That's amazing. Well, an album that just celebrated its 30th anniversary out of time. It's amazing how that album really resonates for people just hasn't dated at all. It's and and for those of us who are already long time REM fans when that album came out, a whole new era for you.
2: Yeah, we were doing things that people weren't doing then, <laughs> right that right that minute, and we were doing it with our own particular flair, I guess. I mean that record, you know in particular, uh, it's a lot of songs about death, which is on the face of it quite sad, but there's an immense amount of catharsis, I think, to approaching uh, such a difficult subject face on and being able to express the infinity that we all have through these shared experiences that are often difficult or not, or not easy. And then being able to not only deliver, but receive that through music, of course, provides a whole other level of, well, heartache, <laughs> but other things, you know, it touches you in a way different way than other other mediums, other art forms too. So yeah, I'm, I'm really super, very proud of both of those records I have to say.
0: The song that kills me on out of time is uh, half a world away.
2: My mind is racing,
1: so well.
0: Never a hit, still kind of a deep cut, but
2: me too. I just started singing that song about a month ago. I went back to the place where I wrote it and it hit me how beautiful that song it's like really, really, really dark and really sad. But there is this feeling of having been through something uh, after you've sung along to it. Yeah, I love that song. I, I've completely forgotten about it. But it just kind of hit me again.
0: It's a song, It, another legendary bird song, but Birdland by Patti Smith. There's that sort of sense of these blackbirds following you around, almost is a another haunting memory.
2: Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But Birdland is really the song on Horses that turned me. You know, that's the one. And Patty knows this now, but uh, that's there are several lyrics in that song that, uh, as a 15 year old with a very limited knowledge of music and its power, that's the song that I just went, "What the fuck is this?" And I never looked back. I mean, I decided then and there that I was going to dedicate myself to art and to music and I was going to be a singer in a band you know it didn't occur to me that I would have to a be able to write lyrics b be able to sing c be able to stand on stage and perform in front of people all these um all these things it didn't occur to me as a 15 year old that you had to kind of follow through you know on that dream but the dream became a nightmare and I followed through on it and the nightmare became a dream again and very end that sense of
0: being haunted by the past, I guess, country feedback is another song on that album that just destroys me such a soulful performance, just it audible in your vocals.
2: Yeah, luckily, um, it's fiction. (laughs) It it didn't happen. But it's one of my list songs. So it lists all these ways that this couple really at the the very end of their relationship has tried to make it work and, uh, and realized that it's a complete failure. it will never, it will never work. So it's a list of just one sad thing after another. I don't remember writing it. I do remember singing it. And I remember um, that, um, I I believe I sang it. In history, I thought that I sang it once, walked out of the studio and went home and like slept for 14 hours. I believe then when we re-released Automatic for the People, that's the record that that's on, right?
0: The one before that, out, out of time.
2: Out of time, sorry, sorry, sorry. I get them mixed up. Uh, yeah, when we released that record, um, we, we did some we went back and found a bunch of demo tapes and I, I believe actually there's a demo version of Country Feedback, which in, in my mind I had only ever sung it once, but maybe I sing it twice.
0: You end that album with uh, such an ambiguous song, one of my very favorite R.E.M. songs. Me and Honey.
2: Me I read this, he wrote something about that song, I think. You were wrong, dead wrong, <laughs> about it. But but it was it was a sweet um, uh, interpretation of what the lyric was. Yeah, the song is about a guy who's um, gotten a woman pregnant, and she's decided to have an abortion. And he was not; she did not um, contact him to let him know her decision, and he's very very upset by it.
0: I've been totally wrong about that song all these years.
2: Nope, that's okay. <laughs> not at all. It is such a uh,
0: such a beautiful groove.
2: It is beautiful. It's got Kate Pearson on it, and that's—I thats amazing. that's a, the that's a record where everyone we knew who was brilliant, whose name started with a K, we basically rang them up and said, we you be on our record?" We have Kid Jordan, you know. We have KRS-One. We have Kate Pearson. There's a few other K's in there, but we were really trying to be anything but REM. You know, we were trying to really step outside of ourselves and and uh, to do so with great horn players and string arrangements and and other other singers. What other what other voices could bring? Uh, to our particular take on pop music.
0: You were always not content to repeat yourself. You never have been. But an album that celebrates a, a 10th anniversary this year, that's another huge favorite of mine. Top five album for me is Reveal.
2: Ah, really? 10th? No, it's been longer than 10 years. Since we've
0: been oh, 10th. 20, 20th, sorry.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 10 years was, um, actually, this is a little bit of a, it, it, a little bit pulled the rug out from under my feet. Um, when someone announced to me a couple of weeks ago, I guess that it was ten years since Ariane released Collapse into Now, and that was the last album we ever made. To realize that a decade has passed since then was pretty freaky for me. I felt like I haven't done a whole lot, and I need to get busy. <laughs> so, I <laughs> so I booked some time in the studio, and I got back. I got back to working on some com- compositions. Reveal, Rob, thank you. Uh, is also maybe my favorite. It might be. It might have um, passed. With a lot of a lot of time, it might have passed on uh, New Adventures in Hi-Fi as to become my favorite record. I took advice from Madonna for that record. She gave me some really great advice, and I I, I accepted her advice and I followed it to the T. And I think it really helped create a complete. For me, that record is about summer. Really, it's one of the records where I just said I'm going to make this completely thematic about something, and then within that, I can do whatever I want lyrically. So, at the very beginning of writing words for that. Uh, I said, This is about summer, my favorite season. And I think it really holds together. So thank you, Madonna. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Mike.
0: Thank you. I never knew I had to thank Madonna for that record, but I certainly do. Um, but the way you sing about summer, such a range of emotions. You know, Beach Ball is such a huge song for me, Bang a Drum is such a huge song for me.
1: I sing her says
0: The seahorses are such a resonant image. I don't know if I've even seen seahorses in real life.
2: I used to have them when I was a child. Um, we would have them delivered in the mail. Uh, we lived in Texas, which was really hot, and the mailman would always, he would never read. They came in a like a Chinese takeaway container. It was the 70s, but the mailman would not read on the outside He said, please do not leave in hot mailbox. So I would, time after time, I got these like kind of half dead seahorses. <laughs> And I finally gave up and moved to um, what are the little, the little shrimp, there's sea monkeys, sea monkeys. I moved to sea monkeys. I moved from seahorses to a tropical frog. He lived for about 10 days and then he floated belly up and that was really sad and pathetic. So then I just was like, uh, fuck it, I'm going to go to sea monkeys and I moved, I moved to sea monkeys and they're quite resilient in in Texas in, in the middle of summer. How did we get onto that Oh, the seahorses? I was actually writing about dragonflies and seahorses on that record, and people thought I was making these amazing um, analogies. And I wasn't. I wasn't. I guess I, I wrote a lot of the record in, in Athens, Georgia, and my yard there has an inordinate amount of dragonflies in the heat of summer. And I think they're just the most magical uh, creatures, you know, dragonflies and hummingbirds and um, seahorses. They're all, I think, meanest snakes in real life. But we have this romantic idea of, of them being these magical kind of unicorn creatures. So I, I wrote them into a couple of the songs there. Beat a Drum.
0: Yeah, beautiful song. One of my very favorite REM songs. That's one of my favorite albums. It's one that fans seem to like to argue about because everybody's got different highlights for that one.
2: Yeah, what year did that come out? So if it was 20 years 2001.
0: Ago, ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, like in, right in time for summer, too.
2: A lot of my favorite songs
0: of yours are about summer in different ways. I think for a lot of R.E.M. fans, the pinnacle of pinnacles, my favorite is Night Swimming.
1: Night Swimming
2: deserves a quiet night.
0: Such a powerful, emotional song. So simple in some ways, but just so, so soulful.
2: Yeah, Mike wrote that one. And it's a spiraling uh, piano part that changes just enough to allow um, me some room to crescendo a couple of times in the song. Uh, I love that song too. It's a beautiful song. That was actually kind of uh, it was based on real stuff. It's not completely fictionalized, but a lot of I mean most of what i I, I very rarely write uh, autobiographically, but um but there are a bunch of examples in that song that came from real. I love that song too. Yeah. Well, wow, you're hitting all the all the great I mean, me and honey, I hadn't thought about or or listened to in a great long time, but uh, but you're 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 hitting a lot of my favorite songs from the work that we did. a few stinkers in there too you know but i never want to talk about my opinion of the ones that i don't like because it might be someone's wedding song or or the song that you know helped them through some difficult time in their life and so i don't want to say bad things about it because i love it
0: that's generous of you you've got the kind of longtime fans and followers and listeners who really like to argue about this stuff so an album that's very polarizing but very fun to argue about and everybody's got a different opinion about but monster which i love And in general, people like to argue about that one. I I think it's great.
2: Courtney Love remains. She has told me since we released it, that it's her favorite Oriental. And so and she's got really good taste. (laughs) So I've always had that in my back pocket because there there was a long period of time there where that record became a little bit of a running joke, I think. And and I I listened back to it. And to me, it's just really kind of dumbheaded glam rock uh, in a way, and it, it led to some other stuff that where I was really exploring that influence on us uh, through songs like the wake up bomb, which came much later. I don't remember what record that's on, but
0: new adventures.
2: Is it? Oh yeah. So I really do like that record as it turns out, but monster. Yeah. Well, we, we had to tour. I mean, this is a really boring old story, but we had to tour and we needed songs that weren't, you know, slow mandolin songs about death. And so (laughs) we tried to write, you know, a couple of big loud Things that people can jump up and down and, and go like that and, and and feel like they're participating rather than just crying for two hours during the live concerts. So that's how Monster came about. That was really our intention with that one.
0: I love that one. It's very emotionally nuanced, but very sonically loud and, and exuberant. I've been having this argument with some of my friends for 30 years. So I figured I'd go ahead and ask. It probably seems like an idiotic thing. I feel like I
2: should, I feel like I should have a curtain here that I can I can kind of pull back. I can be the guy behind the curtain who. Reveals all. So, <laughs> go ahead. Let's see, let's hear it. Bring it on. <laughs> all
0: right. All right. The line that begins like a hurt lost and blinded.
1: Like a hurt
2: lost and blind. Fool. It's full. Cool. Full. It's not full.
0: Yeah. I've been wrong all these years.
2: You that thought it was full.
0: Yes. Lots of people that's think a, it's full.
2: That's a baby lamb, right?
0: I think a baby horse.
2: A baby horse. Okay. I never liked horses. Um, yeah. I mean I, I like. The idea of them but I, I don't want to touch them uh, and as it turns out they don't want to touch me either so yeah no it's fool sorry fool I think I took that from motown i I think that um that's a direct lift from a motown song to call yourself a fool I've always heard a lot of Motown
0: in your vocals particularly Marvin gay and I wondered if you're an especially big Marvin gay fan
2: I mean yes I am a huge fan but I don't think of myself as a very soulful singer I do, I do think of him as such but uh, but wow, thank you. That's really a huge compliment. Wow. Thank you a lot. I hear that um, in Strange Currencies. But I always thought that that was, uh, there was a lot of Michael Hutchence in Hutchins that. you know, I took a lot, especially in the bridge of that song. I took a lot from Michael, as did Bono. He was a great frontman. Good God. Uh, Michael it was Bono's toys. Real love. Um, in
0: general, got a lot of fans who really like to micro interpret the lyrics in, in a way that must be exhausting for you. But it also it must be on some level kind of amusing for you,
2: as long as it's not the first two albums. <laughs> I'll answer any question. The first two albums. I don't know what the fuck was going on. I, I was it was it's all emotion. It's really like um, those bands like Sigur Ross or um, this mortal coil who had singers that just sing nonsense. I was basically singing nonsense. and. I say that with all the love in my heart. I mean, I was, there are words there that make sense. There are words that make no sense at all. There are words that are strung together that make absolutely no sense, but it's it doesn't matter because it's really, it really, really, really was about the feeling and the emotion of the voice. And the, and it was as real as could be. I mean, part of it was just abject fear on my part because I didn't know my way around the recording studio. I didn't know that I had a voice. I was still kind of singing like a rockabilly uh, singer. Uh, if you listen to early uh, bootlegs of, of R.E.M., you know, I sing like Elvis Presley. I mean, it's, it's all that I knew. Really. So I, I was kind of doing Elvis on the one hand and, and then a, a male version of Patti Smith on the other hand. And with a couple of records that turned into some version of me, you know, the band, Mike Mills particularly loved the Ramones and wanted to play really fast songs. And I thought the music was too fast. So my way of slowing it down because they weren't going to slow it down was to just slow my voice down and uh, kind of hang out on the vowels.
0: I guess those were songs that you wrote to play live first and foremost. And so they were songs where different kind of vocal, different kind of a lyrical approach definitely than the subsequent records.
2: I realized after Murmur that I couldn't continue with that. I, I had to I had to allow some narrative form or thread to enter. And so Reckoning the second Orient album becomes um, kind of me picking characters from, from the South, uh, mostly from Athens, uh, Georgia, and kind of writing about them. And of course, fictionalizing their stories, but Old Man Kinsey, and there's a lot of real people in that in there that become somewhat fictionalized. And then by the time we got to um, the next record, I feel like I had kind of figured out that, um, that I could write fiction better than I could write from real life. And, and, and that's, that's where I hung. Actually, that's where I remained.
0: I don't know whether you think when you're, you've been writing songs as where they would go on an album, but it seems like you always had an approach to album closers. You mentioned Old Man Kinsey. Is that close the No, like I'm thinking that closed the first side. Um, but Wendell G, another album closing song from that album. One of my very favorites, Find the River, the very end of Automatic for the People. You know, that would be my pick as the great album closing song of, of all album closing songs.
2: That's all Mike and Peter and Bill. Every one of those uh, I've, I couldn't sequence my way out of a paper bag, but those guys are really good at it I, as it turns out, actually, the truth is I've been putting out photo books and i I've, I've learned how to sequence images, which for me are a lot easier than than sound and music and, and uh, narrative voice and narrative. you know that's a real lot harder for me uh, but but uh, yeah, no, that was all Mike and Peter and Bill uh, Peter a lot he, he always wrote the set lists, but yeah, they're the ones who would decide what song to close with there's one record that has a song that doesn't have a name i think it's green hold, hold him and keep him strong while i'm away from here i don't remember i think it's green that's a great closing track as well it's so beautiful
0: I take you back to new adventures in hi-fi which was one you were talking about it's like one of your favorites but That's an album that it's another one that people like to argue about because everybody's got different highlights from that album and people like to disagree about what the best. Everybody loves the album, but people disagree about what their personal highlights are.
2: That record, I mean, there was a lot of exploration of the American West and my fascination with the desert and with um, desert culture and the historic move east to west and. Um, so you get songs like, uh, how the West was Won" and where it got us and low desert, which is on, I know that's on new adventures in high five. there's another American West song on new adventures. I can't think of what it is, but I chose to move to Los Angeles for a few years as my second home from New York as my second home. Uh, now my permanent home, I chose to live uh, out there for a while. And I was fascinated with every aspect of that part of our country, how. Completely weird it is, and weird it remains. It's gotten so weird. I, I, I'm almost allergic to LA. I'm sorry, people that live there and love it, but I, I i can't spend a real lot of time there. But because I don't know who I am when I'm there, and, and that's part of the you know, it's like a, a Bruce Wagner or Joan Didion book. You know, I can't, I don't know who I am, and it's just incredibly isolating. Which outside of the year that we're all moving through COVID and moving into or post-COVID or, or Late COVID, whatever, wherever we are now, there's enough isolation in the world. I, I can't imagine really what that feels like from from there. But I explored that. Uh, all that to say, moving there allowed for a whole new set of like fictional narratives and and stories. I love the guy in low desert. It's such a sad, um, just the saddest, most inconsequential death uh, story. And it's nature looking down on the guy in this smoking lump of a car. And just saying, Well, you know, you did that to yourself. Like we, <laughs> you know, sorry, guys, see you next time, basically. The mountains and the clouds, and and they're all just kind of going, yeah there goes another one.
0: Amazing well, it ends with one of one of your great album closers, a, a perfect LA song, Electrolyte.
2: Oh yeah, that's super, that's very LA. That's the one. Yeah. I did not want that song to ever come out. I thought it was really uh twee and stupid and and limited and one note and too obvious. And it's Tom York's favorite song, I think ever that we wrote, And uh, uh, which is not bad. He's also got very good musical taste. So I did learn to love it. We, we made a really fun video with Spike Jones and Peter Care in Los Angeles. And it mentions, of course, Mulholland Drive. And I shared a dentist with Martin Sheen. And at one point, Martin was in the dentist chair. And The dentist was like, come, 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 come. Have you ever met? And I'm like, no, no. And I don't, this is not, he's like with his mouth open and all jacked up with uh, Novocaine. The last thing he wants is to have me, you know, some pop star (laughs) walk in and shake his hand. But the dentist literally pushed me through the door and there's Martin Sheen. And I, I, it was good timing because that record was just about to come out. And I said, "Um, it's really a pleasure to meet you. I'm a huge fan. Um, Don't say anything. It's okay. He's like, and... I said, I want to let you know before the record comes out that I've, I've mentioned you in a song and it's, it's incredibly flattering. Uh, you're in there with James Dean and there's someone else, Martin Steve Sheen. McQueen. Steve McQueen. I'm Martin Machine. I'm Steve McQueen. There's Martin Sheen, James Dean, and, uh, and Steve McQueen, three great actors. Um, so, yeah, that's a very LA, very, very LA song.
0: It's funny to hear you describe it as twee in one note because I I think you might be the only person who feels that way it's I I love how it begins as such an excited song you're excited by LA and by the end you're so alienated and isolated and like you said you just want to escape you go through the whole journey in that song
2: yeah I think I wanted to write the song that was addressing the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century that was it I felt um and musically a great guy Prince but I wanted to do my own little version of 1999 and so electrolyte became that.
0: In terms of a bridge between the centuries, I think, unfortunately, it it did turn out to be a very accurate sort of prediction, that 21st century mood of isolation.
2: Ah, yeah, well, here we are. Yeah, oh well. Another pressing, depressing lyric by Michael Stipe, courtesy of, yours truly, there it is.
1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. I'm here with Rob Sheffield. We just heard his great interview with Michael Stipe, Rob, we were saying that you never know, you know, which Michael Stipe you're going to get. He's never been a guy who loved interviews. Sometimes he could be a little grumpy, perhaps, in these conversations. But that wasn't the Michael Stipe who turned up. He was not grumpy in this talk. Yes,
0: he was uh, extremely animated, extremely funny, the essence of charm and generosity. And also just fired up. It was really fun to talk with him in ways that tapped into his fandom for lots of music he loves but especially the music he made with rem and it's really kind of beautiful how much excitement and enthusiasm and very rightful pride he has with you know the music he made with this band they were never the kind of band that you felt were going to talk smack about each other after they broke up and yet you know, they've all got their creative lives rolling 10 years after they broke up but mike's definitely not somebody who was fond of interviews even at the height of his fame and in the 90s for music journalists uh a joke was that R.E.M. stood for really elusive Michael because he just avoided interviews. And if he was talking, he avoided saying anything. But he was obviously inspired to talk about this.
1: I love that he mentioned the completely unintelligible lyrics, almost unintelligible lyrics, on their early albums. And he compared it to Sir Rose, who were, of course, the Icelandic band that uh, invented their own language for their music. And there is an element of that, especially on the debut. The uh, the aptly titled Murmur is full of, of murmurings and uh, and words, but words that don't necessarily mean anything. And uh, basically, ask them about the lyrics, but not those, I guess, because they aren't lyrics, really.
0: Yeah, he, he said, you know, those were written for when R.E.M. was playing bars and keg parties, and nobody was ever going to notice the words, even if the songs did have words, and that the words were just part of the sonic impact of the band and they were never intended to mean anything but of course because rem were so huge and because we all obsessed about them so much as soon as murmur came out so i, you know, I was total prototypical rem fan who was analyzing their lyrics i was like hmm in laughing when he refers to luwakuan a fascinating character from the aeneid who warns about the trojan horse What does it mean that Luakuan had two sons and that, you know, run the gamut, a sainted few? What does that mean? I don't even know if that's the actual lyrics, but because we all had to guess and make them up. That was part of the fun of being an R.E.M. fan back then is that nobody nobody knew any more than anybody else what the words of the songs were, much less what they meant.
1: Now, after talking to him and just based on your own instincts as a fan and scholar, do you think R.E.M. will ever get back together under some circumstances? They left
0: on good terms. They definitely were a band that handled breaking up the right way. As they said at the time, and as they've often said, they weren't breaking up because there were any personal issues or musical issues. They just felt like they had told this particular story and it was time to move on. And they've all kept busy creatively since then. And they've really respected their legacy since then in a way that's honestly, sadly, really rare for bands of that fame level who break up and that they have basically never tarnished their legacy since they broke up, and they haven't done anything cheesy to sort of cash in on on having been in R.E.M. And so I think with this kind of band, if they ever did work together again, it would definitely be something where it it would have to be for the inspiration, because they broke up because they felt like they'd written all the songs they needed to write, they'd made all the albums they needed to make, and i think if they did it again whether it was a you know the proverbial coachella reunion show or you know whether they did like try writing songs together again it would be a thing where they they did it because there was some element of surprise involved because this band they always did everything their way so if they ever reunited it would certainly be on their own terms
1: you spoke a little bit about stipe's unique low-key solo career Just in general, I think the way that he's handled his post-R.E.M. years has been really cool and sort of singular. It feels a little bit, I don't know if if I'm getting this off the top of my head or if someone else said this, but it feels a little bit like he sort of reverted to the person he would have been if R.E.M. had never happened. He's making visual art, which was something he'd studied, and it's just this this awesomely cool downtown guy. I really enjoyed when he had the giant beard. I felt like that was his final form. I I was actually a little sad when he shaved it off. but. I thought there's something really interesting about that, where he just so seemingly resumed the life that he would have been living had there never been an R.A.M.
0: Yeah, that's really kind of fascinating. You know, there was that amazing photo that went viral a couple years ago where it was an exhibition of his photographs and Tom York was there and it was like they were having a competition to see who could have the most Moses-like beard. And to see these two guys snuggling together with, you know, their their wise gray beards all the way to their knees... It was just a beautiful image, and especially since Tom York just epitomizes the kind of R.E.M. fan who was inspired to go on this lifelong creative journey just because he loved R.E.M. so much. I happened to see Radiohead in New York City the night after R.E.M. announced that they were breaking up, and Tom York did this beautiful solo piano version of The One I Love, and It was great because he didn't make a corny speech about how this band changed his life. He he didn't treat it like a big melodramatic statement. It was just a really simple, sincere, from the heart fan gesture. Really kind of a beautiful way of saying thank you from one great artist to the great artist who inspired them and set them down their path. And. There was a lot of that when R.E.M. broke up. I think people realized that they'd been taking this band for granted for a while. Stephen Malkmus did a very beautiful live version of Radio for Europe for the same reason. But in recent years, especially as younger artists have discovered R.E.M. and really gotten excited about R.E.M. and have really heard this music accurately, I think, and have heard how you know, weird and innovative it was, in addition to how purely rocking it is. And so... I think it's an exciting time to be an R.E.M. fan, and I apologize for using this word again, but it really is kind of an R.E.M. essence. I apologize for using that word once, let alone twice, but...
1: forgiven. <laughs> so, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks so much to Rob Sheffield for sharing his great interview with Michael Stipe, and we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Of course, download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Those are always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. Keep staying safe, and we will see you next week.